My father used to say, when I was a young boy, you're a chip off the old block. It's an interesting expression. I'm a very literal person, so you act like actually picture a block, and you picture like this chisel and a hammer and knocking it down. Well, this block is getting smaller, and this one's over here. And you know that there's of the same substance. There's this relationship. Sometimes we bear the image of our parents physically. Okay? And sometimes we bear the image of our parents psychologically. Uh, we've grown up and they, they, their way it impacts our way and we start to develop ways of life that our parents uh, instructed us in or demonstrated for us. Uh, I've been following my father's footsteps in, in certain ways in my life. And one of those ways that I, I know psychologically I've been uh, marked forever, I'm very methodical. Very methodical. It's just like, okay, this thing and then this thing. And it's very, very, it's not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry. We're just going to get this thing done. And it could be seen in my early married life in that it took me forever to put my socks on. It's not because I didn't know how to put them on. Just, I go and take my time. So my wife used to say, are your socks on yet? <laughs> and if my socks were on, she says, okay, good, we're going to be on time. And if they're not on, uh, you know, we're not going to be on time. It's very methodical. I have learned over the course of my marriage to be working with lightning precision where it comes to putting my socks on. So I don't even, we don't even have this discussion anymore. But as the years went along, I used to say, oh, my socks are on, Aim. And she said, okay, we're good. We're good to go. It's just one of those psychological or natural things that, that we learn from our parents. My father also gave me a syndrome, a disorder. Are you ready for this? You may or may not have heard of this disorder before. It's called misophonia. Mm, you're wondering right now, what are you talking about? It comes from two words, miso or miseo means to hate. Phonia means noise, to hate noise. This is a psychological um, thing that I, I learned from my father. And I, what I've learned is that misophonia is greatly exacerbated by a lack of sleep. So what you don't want to do is go to like a, a restaurant like Chili's when you're really tired if you are a person that hates noise. Because what you'll think is the people all around this restaurant have decided to chew their chips in your ear. <laughs> I, I learned this from my father. Thank you. For this, there are many things he taught me well. This one I'm less thankful for. I'm a chip off the old block. But when it comes to bearing God's image, it's not about physical traits. It's not learned traits or behaviors. I think you need to really concentrate here. Our environment does not produce our likeness to God. Our study doesn't even produce our likeness to God. The length of time that we've been saved does not in and of itself produce likeness to God. Even simply learning about who God is does not in and of itself produce that likeness. Listen carefully. It is always God who produces likeness to Jesus Christ in our lives. But he's given us an understanding in this passage that there is a process that we are involved in whereby that likeness to our God is put in place. So there is a sense in which we are involved in this process of God's likeness being stamped upon us and God's likeness being manifest through us. And this is where we talk about this concept of the kingdom of God. We know that God is invisible, right? We know that the invisible things of Him are clearly seen through the things that He has made so that the world is without excuse. Not only that, we recognize, well, they can't go to church and see God 
Or can they go to church and seek God? Did God intend for a a, a world around us that is enshrouded by darkness to be able to come in and among the people of God and thus get a glimpse of the glory and majesty of God? I wonder if that's what he wants. In fact, I will take it one step further and say, I know in fact that that is what he wants. Which is why Jesus said in John chapter 13, if you love one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. Why the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Oh, this is good. And then He goes on to say, we, no one's seen God at any time, but God's love has been perfected, completed, really fully demonstrated among us. You see, the invisible God is supposed to be seen by the visible church. Are you part of the visible church? When you and I live for the kingdom of God, the the very visible God himself is seen. No, not, not in all of his glory, but we see him. We see Him manifest. And that is the the goal of the church, is to make Him fully known, or to magnify Him. As we've been studying through this section of Colossians, we've been bringing up this idea of living for God's kingdom. And we're going to continue that approach further, because it's really at the heart of this section. Simply calling oneself a believer does not ensure that you are living for God's kingdom. Simply coming to church on a Sunday does not ensure that you're living for God's kingdom. This chapter of Colossians is calling us to seek those things that are above. We've been told in this chapter that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. This chapter has told us that Christ is our life. And since we are so intimately related to Christ, God intends for us to reflect Him. See, we know the Bible tells us that we're united together with Christ. This is done already. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have already been united together with Christ. This passage makes it clear. You were raised with Him. You were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. But He has made us alive together with Him. And it tells us really that we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ right now. If you've trusted Christ, you are united together with Him. You have this union, this intimacy. But we also recognize, while that is a wonderful position, or a position to have, that I'm united together with Christ, it does not always, is not always reflected in our current condition. The way that we are living is not always reflected by our position. Or our condition does not always reflect our position. We, we Following this concept here, it's glorious to know that we're related to Christ. It's glorious to know that, that we are intimately tied to Him. But we also must, in our current condition, demonstrate this reality. In order to reflect Christ now... In order to live for God's kingdom, now, last week we noted that there were three things, three elements that needed to be put off. The first was our worldly passions. He called that sexual immorality, evil passions, um, desires or or lust and covetousness. There were a couple of others as well, but those concepts of sexual immorality all the way through covetousness put off our worldly passions. Then he tells us to put off our worldly responses. Well, that's even harder. Because we look at some of those lists, the list in verse 5, and we say, yeah, that's very obvious, bad stuff. But we tend to allow issues like anger, wrath, malice, ill-speaking. That's kind of taking blasphemy and making it, Easy to palate, you know, easy to um, to taste, but blasphemy, 
and filthy language, filthy communication of our mouths, we tend to, to tolerate that at a, a higher degree than we do those really, really bad things in verse 5. And God really says, well, put these to death and throw these things off. Is there a difference? Well, one seems a little bit more ferocious when you're saying put something to death. But to throw these things off, he's telling us to do the same thing, right? He's told us that we've been disarmed. Our old man has been disarmed. Doesn't feel like it all the time. Like our old man is disarmed, which is why we have to go through this process of putting off the old man because he seems to want to exercise control over us, even though he doesn't have a right to. Which follows uh, with us putting off our own image. We talk about it in the terms of putting off and putting on. You could also talk about it elsewhere, like denying self. That's what Paul says, denying self, or being crucified with Christ, or uh, walking by faith, or walking in the Spirit, or presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Or you can even use the Old Testament expression, expression, the fear of God. Any one of these gets the same idea across. Instead of me and my desires, and me reflecting what I am, and who I am, and all of my wonder... <laughs> I want to put that to death, and I want to, I want to put God on display. So this week, he moves from the negative of putting these things off, and now we move on to the positive side. Well, what do we put on? What clothing do we put on? How am I going to manifest God, manifest Jesus here and now? How am I going to live for the kingdom? It's not just by putting off the bad things. There must be something good to be demonstrated And that's where he brings our attention this morning. And so if we're going to live for God's kingdom, it necessitates three things we're going to put on, but we're only going to talk about two of them this morning. The first one is this. Living for God's kingdom necessitates a special relationship with God. Living for God's kingdom necessitates a special relationship with God. Oh, please don't miss this. I listened to several messages on this this week. And with all due respect, everyone just kind of glanced over the top of these descriptors at the beginning of verse 12 and said, it's kind of like, well, this is nice, but now let's get into the meat. This is why I'm telling you I'm going to take my time. Because we can, we can buzz through this passage and everyone can go home and go have your, your lunch. But I'm telling you, it's not worth it. We can't miss what God, through Paul, is saying here. He's talking about a special relationship that is ours. We're going to live for God's kingdom. We need this special relationship. And and God calls it out. He calls it out so beautifully here. Take a look, please, at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, or holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. What, what special relationship are we talking about? We don't even get to the, the admonition before we find out this importance of this special relationship. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. This is of utmost important, friends, importance. You cannot live for God's kingdom without this relationship. You cannot live for God's kingdom and, and, and demonstrate God and demonstrate Christ if you are not His. And listen to how he, he describes us. He first calls us the elect of God. The word there is chosen. Those who God says, you're mine. Let me ask you a question. How many souls does God own? Ask Ezekiel. All souls are mine. And here God intervenes in history and says, You, 
Signing my name to you. You're mine. You. I'm signing my name to you. You're mine. You. I'm signing my name to you. You're mine. You're mine. You're mine. And what's so interesting about this, friends, this is what God said about Old Testament Israel. This is what God says about the New Testament church. And I want for us to to meditate on this for a few moments before we plunge in because it's of utmost importance that we understand what God has done for us by calling us His elect, calling us His people, His chosen ones. Take a look with me please at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God has no problem equating Old Testament Israel, New Testament church. And I want to explain as briefly, but as clearly as I can, why that is. Is everyone in Deuteronomy 7? Please look with me at verses 6, 7, and 8. God says to Israel, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen to what He's saying. He chose, He made holy, He loved this people as you transition into the New Testament and you listen to the words of the Apostle Peter and how he talks about the New Testament church, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous Light. You, you hear how Peter is saying, Church, Israel, we are God's chosen people. Do you hear this? Why is there a connection? Why does he have no problem saying, Old Testament Israel, these descriptors, New Testament church, these descriptors? Why does he say this? Listen, everyone in the history of the earth who has come to trust Jehovah God. Anyone who has come to trust the God of heaven. Anyone who has heard what God has revealed to them in the truth that He has revealed. And they have embraced Him by faith. Have entered only because of Jesus Christ. Old Testament Jews, did they know that Jesus was going to come and come as a virgin? Did they know, uh, come from a virgin, excuse me? Did they know that he was going to live a perfect, blameless life? Did they know he would fulfill the law? Did they know he would be rejected indeed by men? Did they know he would be beaten and spat upon? Did they know he would be crucified? Did they know he would die on a cross? Did they know he would rise from the dead? Did every one of them all know all of that information? No. Were there bits and pieces that God revealed? Yes. Did they know to call upon the name of Jesus Christ? No. And yet, it's because of Jesus Christ that they have life. It's because of Jesus Christ that their faith has been counted for righteousness. You see, we're united together in Christ. Which is why in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, oh, and it just makes my heart melt, when it gets down to verse 10 and he says, at the fullness of all the times, essentially, God will gather together in one all things in Christ. 
Friends, you can talk about distinctions, and there are, between Old Testament and New Testament. There are distinctions, but don't forget about the beautiful unity. Don't forget that it all wraps up in the person of Jesus Christ, and we are united together with those people, Old Testament saints, for all of eternity because of Jesus. And I want to tie this together just a little further by looking at some things that God has said in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, you don't need to turn there, God's word refers to Jesus as a chosen cornerstone. In Isaiah chapter 41, excuse me, 42 and verse 1, God calls Jesus my elect one. As you follow this a little further, in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, Jesus is referred to as holy Innocent and unstained. If you look at Psalm 16 and Acts chapter 2, what you'll notice is that, that David writes of Jesus when he's, when he's talking to God. He's essentially saying, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And further, Peter goes on in Acts chapter 2 to write, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of who? The Christ. So we're talking about the chosen one, and we're talking about the holy one, and we're talking about the beloved one. How about that one? In, in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 17, God's voice rings from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I want you to think about this, friends. Old Testament Israel is called chosen. Old Testament Israel is called holy. Old Testament Israel is called beloved. I want you to think about New Testament church. They're called chosen. And New Testament church is called holy. New Testament church is called beloved. And your reason why Old Testament Israel and New Testament church is called chosen, holy, and beloved is because Jesus is holy, chosen, and beloved. The only reason that we have anything to stand on about our chosenness, our holiness, or the fact that God has loved us is because of our union with Jesus. You look through the book of Colossians, and we've been been going through, and it keeps bringing up this concept of unity, this concept of of union, this concept of, of dying with Christ and being raised together with Him. And we have to understand the significance If we don't understand the significance, we're losing out on the greatest part of our Christian life. Listen. Look at what God has done. Did you choose you? If you were God, would you choose you? Please tell me no. If you were God, you wouldn't choose you. I know I wouldn't choose me. Would I call me holy? But I say proudly, that's my beloved one. And yet my God does. He looks at me, elect. He looks at me, holy. He looks at me, beloved. Only God can do this. And he does it through our union with Jesus. We can't skip over the beginning of verse 12 of Colossians 3. He says, as the elect of God, he doesn't say, be holy and be loved. I dare say to you, and I mean this respectfully, please understand my, the love behind the statement. I dare say that many people have gone into churches this morning where they've been told, be holy so you can be loved. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, I love you. I chose you. I make you holy. You are loved. So many people walking through this world they have no clue that God loves them. They're missing. They're missing out on the greatest news they could ever have received because they think they have to do something so that God will finally love them. Love them. 
Maybe you had a bad childhood growing up and you had to earn everyone's love and respect. And it's hard for you to understand that someone can love you for you even though you are you. God loves us if we're his. You cannot live for God's kingdom without this special relationship. I want to refer you to two songs that we sing. Well, one we, one we sing, one has been sung in leading you in worship. The first one is His Robes for Mine, which states, His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone, I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. This, friends, is how we enter into that special relationship because God estranged his chosen, holy, and beloved son in order to make me, to make you, to make God's church his chosen, holy, and beloved child. Think about that. The teens sang this song a number of weeks ago. You sought out the wanderers, made the prodigals, prodigals come home. With a lavish feast, you welcomed us, for you made us your own. You have loved us. Will you read the rest of that line with me? Like you love your son. Can, can, I, can I have you just meditate on that for just a moment? Can I have you read that line that's underlined and bolded with me? You have loved us like you love your son. Do you believe that? Listen, don't lose the wonder of that. Don't lose the awe of the fact that God loves you if you're his, if you've trusted Jesus. God loves you just the same way that he loves his son. We have entered into this special relationship with God because of Jesus. Our union with Christ has produced this special union. Do you have this special relationship with God? Does he see you as he sees his son. This is, only happens when we've trusted Jesus Christ for our only means, the only way for our eternal life. And if, if we don't have this special union with Jesus, this special union with God, I can't give you any instruction that will help you to live for God's kingdom. It's the starting place. It's... It's the difference between death and life. A dead man can't please God. But one who has been raised to newness of life can put something on. Something on that demonstrates the kingdom of God. So to live for God's kingdom, we must have this special relationship. Secondly, living for God's kingdom necessitates fruitfulness from God. Fruitfulness from God. And here's where we get into the, the real meat of this portion here, where, where we get to the instruction or the, the admonition. Take a look back in Colossians chapter 3. Does someone ha- kindly have a tissue of some sort for me? There's, there's nothing up here. I've been stripped of all of my uh, necess- necessary things. Thank you. Thank you. Leave it to a woman to have some princess tissues in their pocketbook. Thank you. It's a demonstration of humility here. I'm using princess napkins in front of you. And I just told you how humble I am, so uh, we've got real problems. Better pause for a minute here. Take a station break. See, I told you we were going to go slowly, so I'm, I'm, you're, getting, you're getting less sermon and a little bit more um, my personality coming out here. Living for God's kingdom necessitates fruitfulness from God. Verse 12 again. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, 
kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. I want to let you know what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, produce tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm just being frank. Most churches right now are preaching, and if they're in this text, they're telling you to produce this. I'm telling you that that's what's going on. He does not say, learn how to act with tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Instead, he tells us to put on, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. You may ask, what's the difference? You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Do you think that's what's going on? Do you think we're making a mountain out of a molehill? Is there a difference between, hey, go and do tender mercies. Learn how to be tenderly affectionate to other people. Learn how to be kind. Learn how to be humble. Learn how to be meek. Learn how to exhibit long-suffering. Learn how to do these things. Do you think there's a difference between that and saying put it on? There's a huge difference. One is man-made. The other is God-made. At the heart of our thinking, we must remember Jesus' teaching in John 15. Listen to what he says in John 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, what's it say? You can do nothing. What is the key to John 15 verses 4 and 5? Abiding in Christ. Who's performing the actions? Christ. Whose righteousness is it? Whose power is it? Whose grace is it? Whose ability is it? It is not mine. You see, you can come to church and you can learn what tender mercies means. And you can learn what what kindness is and what humility looks like and and how uh, meekness is to be demonstrated and what long-suffering is. You can learn all this information. You can go and try to be a better person. And you would be a better person if you were trying to do those things. You just wouldn't be a more spiritual person. It's not bad to be a better person. I want you to be a better person. I want to be a better person. But we won't be more spiritual just because we know this information. Even if we know the information and say, hey, I'm going to do that thing. Good. Uh, I'm going to stop saying good luck. It's just not, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You don't learn something and then put it into action spiritually. You do that in the world. You know, someone teaches you a trade and you go and you apply the trade and it's all good. We, we learn, we live and learn through, through trial and error and all these things. It's good. That's not the way it works in the spiritual world. It's all you or it's all God. There is no combination thereof. God's grace produces Christian virtues. God's grace produces Christian virtues. This is why he says put on. It's like I'm saying, here I am, no coat. Grab the coat and I put it on. Okay, now I have on this coat. Is this me? It's not me, right? Clothes don't make the man, even if someone said it does, right? Clothes don't make the man. This isn't me. I'm putting on something else, something on the outside. And that's really the analogy he's putting to our attention. Put these things on. They don't belong to you. You will not master these things. They're God's. What does it look like in Colossians 3? What what is this grace of God producing uh, Christian virtues? What does it look like in Colossians 3? Well, first of all, he says tender mercies. Put on tender mercies. The concept there is a heart of compassion. The King James is bowels of mercies. Everyone likes a good conversation about bowels. It's that you can really feel that conversation, right? The Greeks would talk about bowels in the sense of it you can feel it in the depths of your stomach. You can feel it there. 
and, and what the concept that is trying to be communicated by tender mercies or these bowels of mercy is this, that, that right in the, the core of who you are, you can sense this mercy. Remember, you're putting it on. It's not coming from within you because from within you, Jesus said, comes other stuff that goes out into the draught. <laughs> not good stuff. But when we put it on, it, it, it enters and it, and, it, and it really envelops our whole being. Jesus exhibited tender mercies, the very kind spoken of here. I just draw your attention to a number of passages. Matthew 14, 14 says this, When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on them. Tender mercies. And he healed their sick. In Mark chapter 1, verse 41, Jesus was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand, and he touched and uh, him, the the lame man, and he said to him, I will be clean. Then in, in Mark chapter 6, he's telling his disciples, hey, hey, listen, we need to go apart for a little while. We're going we're gonna to have a little vacation. They go across the lake. He sees the people there. And, and what happens? When he went ashore, ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And so instead of vacation, I'm going to invest in them. Instead of vacation, I'm going to feed them. This is what he, he how did, where did it come from? Tender mercies. Put on tender mercies. Where, where you see someone else, and your heart is attached to theirs. You look at 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Tender mercies there, friends? Tender mercies. Can I conjure that up? Yes, I can conjure it up. I can learn how to be empathetic and care. Is that what we're looking for here? Learning how to care? Oh, just learn how to care for other people than yourself. It doesn't work that way. We're putting on something that's not ours. Tender mercies. It comes from putting on Christ. He's the one who is the, the absolute gold mine when it comes to tender mercies. And, and then he says, put on kindness. Well, what is that? Gentleness or moral goodness. I'm going to have you turn to one of these passages, and we're going to look at a couple of others on the screen behind me, but take a look at Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. While you're turning there, I'm going to remind you of some passages of Scripture that you are familiar with, or at least many of you will be. We're talking about putting on kindness. Now, we already talked about tender mercies, now kindness. They're similar, but different. Here in Psalm 34 and verse 8, the Bible says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, God's word says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is, is intended, is meant to lean you, lead you to repentance? God's kindness leads us to repentance. Now listen to this one. In Luke 6, 35, Jesus said, But love your enemies... And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Listen carefully. For He, the Most High, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Hey, it's easy when you have a cookout. Everyone's having a good time. Someone hands you a plate of food to be kind to them. That's easy. Anybody can do that. Anyone can go across someone that has a smile on their face and say, Hey, how you doing? It's easy. But what about the people that are a miserable wretch? What about the person with a horrific attitude? What about the person that won't look in your direction? It's so easy to just move in the other direction. Until we realize that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11. You're, you're there. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28. Very familiar passage. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is kind, and my burden is light. It says easy, right? But it's the word kind. It's the same word. Take my kindness upon you. My yoke is kind. It's easy, is what he's telling us. And remember this. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I have it memorized in the King James and cannot get it out of my head. But the word kindness is the fifth of the fruits of the Spirit. So we're talking about kindness. Can I learn how to be kind? Sure you can. Spiritually? No. How many years have you been coming to church? Well, 47 and a half, 50, 60, 10, 3, 1, 6 months. You don't learn how to be kind spiritually. You put kindness on. Kindness flows out of spirit-filled living. That's what happens. God produces it. The next fruit or virtue is humility. A really great definition is it's a deep sense of one's littleness. A deep sense of one's littleness. Now, here I am. I'm I'm trying to puff you up in the first half of the sermon, right? You're beloved of God. Do you remember when we read the, the Deuteronomy 7 passage? I didn't choose you because you're great. I chose you because you were the least. Paul said the same thing to the Corinthians. Not many noble, not many mighty. It's, it's the weak. It's, it's the ones that recognize their, their smallness. God, God does this. He, he produces this kind of deep sense of littleness. It says in verse 29 of Matthew 11, which you're already in, Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. There's that humility. Paul told the Corinthians, I beseech you, I I entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness, this is humility, gentleness of Christ. So Paul wanted that gentleness. Remember, it only comes from the Lord. It only comes from His working. You put this on, it's not yours. You don't develop humility. You you don't have to say, oh, I'll never pray for humility, because then God will put put me through all these things. It's not yours. The humility is not yours. It's His. You you pray for being spirit-filled, you're praying for humility. And peace, and long-suffering, and gentleness, all these things. Then he moves on to meekness, back in Colossians 3, meekness. Now we know the, 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 the one that's been coined that's really good. Meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. It's a, it's a really good definition of meekness. But the definition that I came across that I find to be really powerful, impactful to my own thinking on it, is that meekness is a willingness to be injured rather than to cause injury. Can I, can I get you to just kind of mull that one for a moment? Meekness is a willingness to be injured rather than to cause injury. I don't think we need much more of an image of this than when Jesus stood on trial, was beaten, was crucified, and was killed. The one who issued and sustained life subjected himself to death. And by the way, did you know that meekness is a fruit of the Spirit? You don't learn this. You don't learn how to do this. You don't muster it up. It comes out of the flow of a spirit-filled life. It comes out of our lives when we're submitted to God. That's, that's living for God's kingdom. When God works in us and his fruit comes through us, who produces it? God does. Is it supernatural? 
Is it just as supernatural as parting the sea? It is. It's just as as supernatural as parting the sea. Do we need grace for this? Yes. Now, long-suffering he moves on to, and it's an, an attribute or perfection of God, and it's also a fruit of the Spirit. So we've got long-suffering. And the concept here is one that bears long with people. And this is where he actually transitions from a list of virtues. What are the list of virtues? Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. And then he turns to fleshing it out because God's grace produces Christian forgiveness. We, We look at, he tells us then to move from putting these things on, and he says, while you're doing that, you'll be bearing with one another and forgiving one another just as Christ has forgiven you, just as you've been forgiven through Christ. When we talk about bearing with one another, we're talking about putting up with each other's idiosyncrasies, right? You find anyone that has any idiosyncrasies around? You see your own idiosyncrasies? We're bearing with one another in our idiosyncrasies. But we're forgiving one another in our, what? Sinfulness. And so the question is, to what extent? To what extent do we forgive one another? Well, if the offense isn't too bad. Is is that a biblical definition of of forgiveness? Are we putting this forgiveness on or are we mustering it up of our own accord? We're putting it on, right? It comes from God. I want to tie this together by reading to you a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he says. You must make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in your own heart. Every wish to humiliate or hurt him or to pay him, at, uh, pay him out, meaning um, resentment, paying resentment out. The difference between this situation and the, uh, and the one in such you are asking God's forgiveness is this. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. When we're asking God for forgiveness, we accept excuses too easily. In other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. We don't accept other people's excuses. As regards my own sin, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are not really so good as I think. As regards other men's sins against me, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are better than I think. One must therefore begin by attending to everything which may show that the other man was not so much to blame as we thought. But even, listen, but even if he is absolutely fully to blame, we still have to forgive him. And even if 99% of his apparent guilt can be explained away by really good excuses, the problem of forgiveness begins with the 1% guilt which is left over. To excuse what can really produce good excuses is not a Christian character. It is only fairness. Do you understand that part? To excuse something that, well, I, I see how this happened, so I can understand. I, I can forgive you because I understand how it happened. That's just fairness. That's not Christian. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. He writes, this is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. 
We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is a hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. See, this is the type of forgiveness we're talking about. It says, you know what? There's nothing held back. It's real. It's thorough. It's inexhaustible. Do you realize that God's forgiveness toward you is inexhaustible? So ought your forgiveness toward others be inexhaustible? And friend, I tell you, as I've told you many times and tell myself often, you can't do that. This is why we need to put it on. We need to put on a forgiveness that is not our own. We don't learn how to be forgiving people, though you can develop in that. We need to put on Christ's forgiveness. And when we do that, it is as easy as a small offense, is a a large offense, is a continued offense, because it's not our energy. It is not our goodness. It is not our spirit. It is not our spirituality. It's his. His spirituality is inexhaustible. This is the greatness of grace. It is inexhaustible. You cannot find an end to it. It abounds in the face of our deep need. If we are to rightly bear his image, we must, by his grace, demonstrate this fruitfulness that he talks about in this passage by bearing with people, forgiving people. This is living for God's kingdom. And you can't live for God's kingdom unless you are rightly related to him through Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. And each one has got a different thing on their mind, whether they're thinking about the next thing in life, they're meditating upon their desperate desire for grace and your your ability, whether someone in this room is meditating on the fact that they don't have that grace, that they don't have that special relationship, I don't know what is going on in anyone's heart, but you do. We commit each one into your hands. We commit each need into your capable hands. We bow our hearts, we bow our minds, we bow our souls to you. And we say, Father, help us. We need you. We need your spirit to fill us because we cannot put on of our own accord tender mercies. We cannot put on or display this kindness, this humility, this meekness, this long-suffering. We cannot be this kind of a forgiving person of our own resources. We need you. Thank you that you have united us together with Christ and you've made us your chosen, your holy and your beloved people through Christ. We have everything we need that we might put these things on. Help us to render ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.